Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tennis team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tennis offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting CapitalAllocatorsPodcast.com. My guest on today's first meeting is Richard Lawrence of Overlook Investments Group, one of the top managers of Asian equities. The conversation that follows is a replay of an early episode on capital allocators and one of the inspirations for the first meeting concept. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. All opinions expressed by guests on this show are solely their own opinion and do not necessarily reflect those at their firm. Manager's appearance on the show does not constitute an endorsement or investment recommendation by TED or Capital Allocators. 
My guest on today's show is Richard Lawrence, the chairman and executive director of The Overlook Group, a $5 billion investment organization focused on Asian equities that Richard founded in 1991. Over the past quarter century, Overlook developed and implemented disciplined investment and business philosophies that interconnected to drive extraordinary results for its partners. Overlook has compounded capital at an annualized 14.5%, outperforming its benchmark by an insane 9% per annum. But that's not all. As Richard would proudly tell you himself, the capital-weighted return of the average investor in Overlook is nearly identical to the time-weighted return over any period of time, a rare feat in the money management industry. Indeed, today's capital base is the result of $4 billion of investment gains on top of $1 billion in contributed capital. Our conversation starts with a look at investing in Asia in Overlook's early days and walks through the particulars of the approach Richard takes to investing and running his business, including attractive investment attributes, management integrity, portfolio construction, selling discipline, and China Yangtze Power, the only stock the firm has supersized in an SPV in its history. We discuss Overlook's long-held cap on subscriptions and periodic reductions in its management fee, two business philosophies that Richard believes have been key drivers of Overlook's success. If you enjoyed my conversation with Tom Russo, you won't want to miss this one with Richard. Please enjoy my first meeting with Richard Lawrence of Overlook Investments. Richard, great to see you. Thanks for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. It's good to be here, Ted. Let's start with just your talking, how you got interested in investing in the first place. Oh, well, that, that goes back to my early days. I was a teenager, even almost practically younger. And my dad was managing a multifamily, what you'd call now a multifamily office over at 610 Fifth Avenue. And uh, he had effectively uh, like a mutual fund even before that at Axe Houghton out in Terrytown. And he did a deal with me that if I memorized a poem, he'd give me shares in the mutual fund. So that was good. <laughs> First lesson then, in incentives. And, and, <laughs> right. And this was in the 60s. This was even before he started his own business. This would have been in the 60s. But of course, I'm coming home. He's coming home every day and I'm looking at the sports pages at the, at the Met scores and then I'm looking at it, the mutual fund and the thing never went up. Of course, it was 69. And, and finally, I realized that I really didn't want to, I didn't like memorizing poems <laughs> to begin with. And it's funny because, you know, dad was in in his own right a very, very successful investor, really cared about his clients and primary research. A lot of what I do came from dad. Yeah. And so this was early days, you're at school and so dad's in the business. Is that dinner table conversation? No, not dinner table, but after dinner conversation when my mom had gone to bed because she didn't want to hear about it. <laughs> but he, he would come in and he, he always had these things. He, he'd walk in the room and says, you know something, the greatest thing about the money management business is you get to learn something new every day. You know, there's something new happening in the world or there's some new technology and, and that's great, boys. That's what you want in life. Yeah, it's great lessons. And so then how did you get started in the business? So it was rather by chance. I had spent a summer when I was at Brown interning with John Bush at J. Bush and Company down in, on Wall Street. And I came back for after three years in Latin America. And I had this vague idea that, you know, maybe there was, you know, something, someone John Bush might know in Latin America where I'd go back there and make my living. And I walked into his office. I haven't told this story in a while, but I walked into his office and his analyst who ran his research department had just quit to go back to school. And 
John said, you want a job? I said, well, I don't know. He says, I'll, I'll pay you $30,000. So I came back over to my dad's office and he goes, and I go, dad, I think I've been bought. He says, what did he offer you? I said, $30,000. He says, yep, son, you've been bought. <laughs> <laughs> And then what, so what was Latin America? No, so after college, I just went down to Venezuela, of all places, which at the time was the richest country in South America. And I worked there for two years, and then I traveled for a year around South America, just kind of backpacking my way around. How did you get to Venezuela? Well, I, I, it, was, it, was another, it was another story, embarrassing story. I was about two weeks away from graduation, and I'm sitting around my apartment with all my buddies, and they topic of jobs comes up and they, one by one they all say they got this job or they got jo- that job and I go guys when were you going to tell me I needed to get a job right and so I, I went to my economics professor and he said Richard go to Venezuela and I had no other alternative no, so I said yeah I'll go to Venezuela so. and John Bush was a value investor no John was really a growth investor he was a great company and, and my dad was a growth investor too really and he used to say, we want Bush companies. So John had a model. And he said, just look for companies with these characteristics, that they're growing, they got a 20% return on equity, they got management that we can deal with and approach and talk to. And he says, just go out around the country and find them. So I would read the old short S&P pages on companies looking for growth and 20% returns on equity. And then I'd travel around the country. And John said, well, go find them. So it was Wonderful, and and every time I'd come back with a lousy company, John would say, "No, nah, we're we're actually not going to do that one, Richard." And, <laughs> and so, how long did you stay with him? I was there for three and a half years, and frankly, I, I still love working with John Bush today. I mean, he's one of the great, great, great all-time investors and ethical money managers. Cared like my dad and others. He just came into work and never cared about himself. It was always about the clients, and it was magnificent to see really I mean he's a wonderful man I'd still work but then I I really didn't want to be in America I didn't really want to be in New York and so one day I went into the was walking around Central I went into the Malaysian consulate and I picked up some piece of paper and said the Malaysian economy had grown at 6.8% compounded for 20 years without a down year and I said all right, I'm out of here. <laughs> and so, and that, you know, was, that was the impetus for moving to yeah, Asia? Yeah, that, that was the impetus. Deep research, just a and, line in a Malaysian consulate. And that and the fact that I wanted to take another year off and travel. So with my wife, we went around and we traveled for a year and ended up in Hong Kong. And, Hong and that Kong, was what year was that? That was late 85. When we got to Hong Kong, it was about a year after the joint declaration had been signed where they were, you know, to agree to put Hong Kong back to the Chinese and Hong Kong was just an incredible place. It had four stock exchanges, and when you listed, you actually bought physical space on some whiteboards where they'd put the bid and ask in. And the first thing was I that, did... Was that permanent markers back then? Or? <laughs> yeah, they'd have their markers, and then you'd see the hand come in and rub it off, and it was all done with closed-circuit TVs. So you'd literally see a hand come in and put up another bid or another offer. And I hooked up with another guy, Bob Meyer, and the first thing we did was we bought a shell company, and we injected in some capital. We had four million U.S. dollars in capital, and we're the 93rd largest public company in Hong Kong. With four million dollars, wow! Taiwan was open, Singapore was open, but in in late '85 they suspended for a week, so they were pretty discredited in the Panel crisis. No Thailand, no Indonesia, no Philippines, no Korea, of course, no China. I mean. 
And so what was the plan? Was it an investment company? Yeah, it was just an investment company. And, and if you define me as a very disciplined investor, which I would like, you know, on my tombstones, it was a disciplined investor. This was a very undisciplined vehicle. But we went all around the region and we did real estate, we did stocks, and we did some venture capital with mixed success, really. But I think with focus comes success, and we were not focused. But we were really one of the first people to go around to all parts of Asia and invest. So was- and so how did you evolve from there to founding Overlook? Well, I got my freedom in 1991. We sold the company and I, got, I had a little bit of money. And I went over to my friend Mark Farber's office, and I said, Mark, I, I'd like to see if I could get a desk in your office. I didn't even ask for an office. I said, just give me a desk. And I don't want to be your employee. I just want to be in an environment where people are investing as principals. And I want to, I want to be in that environment, because that's what I want to be. I want to be. And he gave me his little library, which was about maybe 12 by 10, had a desk lined with books, a wobbly aluminum chair where the guests sat and outside there was a little Filipino who Mark was buying all the mouth buttons at the time and this guy, this Filipino, literally right outside my office, he would polish and put in little plastic sheaths uh, mouth buttons all day and Mark has the collection of mouth buttons in the world. Amazing. And, and, and in fact, I, I had known Mark for a number of years but really that was where I became really enamored with what he brings to the investment world, the, the, the thought, you know, and he's a very different guy. He's a macro guy, and I'm a quintessential company guy. But Mark was so good. He always told you the other side of the coin. He always made you think about something that you weren't thinking about. And he wrote well, he communicated well. And how did you evolve from what you had learned at that point in time to what most people would consider a value? investment philosophy yeah well i had found buffett in the early 80s and was reading buffett you know and then when i got to hong kong you know i'd finished by then the cfa torture and and was reading more broadly about putting this together but it was really when i moved into mark's offices instead of working for someone else and executing someone else's stuff i was now you know the lights are out what am I, how am I going to invest? And, and that was where, you know, I came full circle back to Buffett, intelligent investor, and a lot of these other people who have had influence on me, some of whom I've known, some I just read, you know, it's so much of it available. And that was where I really came up with the investment philosophy, which I, I describe as rigid and demanding yet flexible, right? That, that was really pure. So why don't you talk a little bit about what that investment philosophy is and how, you, how you've applied it over the years. Yeah, so let's describe it first off. So the first thing is we want to be in superior businesses. In many ways, I can give my dad credit for that. He always talked about being in great companies, right? Superior businesses have free cash flow. They generate cash. They have a large moat. They have high returns on investment, whether you return on equity, operating return, however you want to do it. They largely have debt-free balance sheets, and they're self-financing their growth. That's what a superior business is. Then we talk about management with integrity. We used to use this word integrity a lot 25 years ago because, frankly, it was integrity. Were these people willing and honest to be able to share the benefits of their public company with minorities? Yeah, I mean, you think about about how often U.S. investors view Chinese managers today with skepticism. I can't imagine what it was like 25 years ago. Yeah, but, but there are... 
are a lot of good guys out there who, who really are willing to share and looking for partners and, and really looking to uh, build great public companies. Now, go back to the mid-80s, early 90s, there weren't any role models. So these good guys... They didn't, they couldn't track, like, I'm going to do what this guy did, because there was no other guy who had gone before him. And so they really suffered until 97, 98 came along. And then the guys with integrity, really, that we changed it to guys who had the know-how, the full range of experience, right? So then third, we just want to be in bargain valuations. We, we want to be an intelligent contrarian. You know, I think Mark has taught me more about that than anybody and then lastly we do everything for long-term capital gains we, we don't have any of this high turnover none of that yeah so i, I want to take you back to some numbers that i pulled out of one year old letter so at, when you were doing this and and a lot of things you talk about right, this is what people want right everybody wants to look for a superb business with a great manager buy something cheap when you were getting started so this is the end of 1994 23 years ago your portfolio was trading in the following metrics a P of eight times, seven times free cash flow, with a 17% normalized growth rate, 19% ROE, average market cap, $230 million. <laughs> <laughs> so, but the difference was back then, I mean, you were managing a very small amount of money. And, and what did investors say to you? I mean, you put these numbers in front of people and boy, anyone today would say, well, that, that's a no-brainer, right? Yeah, of course, of course, interest rates were higher, valuations were lower, the skepticism about Asia was higher. And, and you got to remember, in the early 90s, Asia didn't work. I mean, the good companies weren't going anywhere. It was these crappy companies, these leveraged real estate companies, these leveraged holding companies, these crazy entrepreneurs. And, and we've seen a little bit of a repeat of that in, in more recent years in China, right? But it, it really didn't work. You know, and I was struggling. I was beating my head against trying to get these good guys to perform and, and act correctly. And, but, but they just didn't see the reward for doing it, right, until 97, 98. Was that because of the crisis? Yeah, we went in in 90, classic 97, a classic emerging market crisis. We had 5% negative current accounts, you know, current account deficits. We had had very fast loan growth that was being funded with dollars. We had government deficits, and we had high LD ratios in the bank. And, of course, when the foreigners first pulled the money, all the forex reserves went overnight. And that, those five factors is what takes an emerging market correction into emerging market wipeout. And 97, 98 was top five wipeouts of all time in the stock markets. Indonesia, Thailand, Korea went down over 95% in dollar terms. I mean, almost everybody I knew was going bust, even guys who had no debt, because just business collapsed, confidence collapsed. Interest rates in Indonesia went to 99%. They couldn't go to 100 because the, the computer systems couldn't handle <laughs> triple digits. digits. <laughs> and in, oh, in Hong Kong, with no foreign debt, large foreign exchange reserves, interest rates went to 36%. And in that world, when Hong Kong with a fixed peg to the U.S. dollar goes to 36%, equity value just evaporates. And so it was like hitting the reset button after a natural catastrophe. Yeah. And, and you're managing a, a long-only portfolio of businesses. Right. What's that like? Well, that was not pretty. <laughs> I think at the peak, we, we turned 120 into about 40 million. Yeah. We turned about 120 million into 40. We were down 45 and then down to like another 25 before it 
finally just from exhaustion turned. Along the way, we were fortunate to get backing, so we, we had additional capital, and I, I remember in October 1998, so right towards the end, uh, we had just raised 30 million, so taking us from 40 million back up to 50, 60, 70 million. And within one week, we found two companies in Fosan, Hong Kong, Kingboard Chemical at about two and a half times earnings and Cafe de Corral at about six times earnings. Both companies we own for more than seven or eight years afterwards. Both are highly quality companies, great, great guys, particularly back then. They were really, one was manufacturing laminates in China. Kingboard was doing that and growing really quickly because they were so competitive. And, and Paul Chung knew how to grow a company fast. And on the other side of the call, Michael Chan at Cafe de Corral was just moving he'd been kicked out of central because of the high rents during the the boom years he moved back in and was just killing it you know and the, the, those then from there we went on to you know next one next one next yeah. one and, so let's talk a little bit about the types of businesses so are these businesses back then probably less so today were they mostly domestic businesses or regional businesses? they were country specific businesses for the most part yeah very few regional businesses so when you invested in thailand you invested in thailand and with thai managers and thai balance sheets and thai bank support and whatnot same were indonesia you know and by by 98 you know all these markets had largely opened up so we were traveling everywhere from korea to indonesia and, you know, we weren't managing huge money. And so we had kind of the pick of the litter. Anything we wanted to really buy, we could buy. So you made it through the crisis. How did your clients behave? I mean, you had $130 million, which was, you know, it was a reasonable-sized fund back then. Well, my largest investor left right before it really hit in June of 1997. I replaced him and then calmly took my new largest investor down by 60%. But then they came back in with additional capital and, you know, we yeah. made them hundreds of millions of dollars afterwards. But, but you know, you lose your, your biggest investor. It's like everything's challenging. And so you, I, I have created what you call the roadmap for a, a bear market. So calling every single investor, more transparency, more t- discussion, more you know, give them the detail and the transparency through the portfolio. You can't hide. There's no denying I just kicked the hell out of everybody, right? So you, you, you just talk about your big positions and why you've got confidence and, you know, debt-free balance sheets run by good guys yeah. helps, helps you get through. Yeah. Why don't you talk a little bit about the kind of metrics you look at? So what is a bargain for you? Well, when I was working for John Bush, I came up with this thing, we want to buy stocks with PEs, half the growth rate, and half the return on equity. So if you've got a company growing at 20% with a 20% return on equity, we want to buy it at 10 times. Now, that's hard. But that ratio, that equation, and, and a few people have equations out there that are, that are useful. What that does is that pushes you towards high profitable businesses because it's much easier to find a company with a 30% return on equity growing at 10% than the reverse. Because the guy growing at 30% with a 10% return on equity, you just haven't figured out he's going to dilute you because he can't fund it, right? So that equation was pushing me towards high profitability businesses, which was really consistent with what my investment philosophy was. So, you know, we, we look at a variety of things. I think in, in today's world, it's more complicated. We have bigger types of businesses in the portfolio, so, you know, such as infrastructure, which you can't. But 
But for most of the 26 years, we, we brought pretty similar businesses, and we were looking at, at what we call normalized growth rate, which what we think it can grow its EPS at over three to five years. And we look at valuations, yields, price yeah. to book. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's not really rocket science. It's really is your projections on return on equity, operating return, or, or your normalized growth rate. Are those numbers accurate? And what does long-term mean to you? You mentioned long-term capital gains. That's just a, that's one year. I know you've held stocks for a lot longer than that. Long-term is you can go as long as you can. I mean, we've owned TSMC now for over seven, well, probably 17 years. That, I mean, when That's you Taiwan can, Semi. Taiwan Semiconductor. I mean, you can own a stock for 17 years. Instead of needing 20 to 22 stocks, I need 19 to 21 stocks. I mean, that, that's good for everybody, including yeah. me. And you so have you, have you been rigorous about only having a certain number of stocks in your portfolio? Yeah, we have 20 to 22. In the early years, we had a kind of a basket trade on, some, on a particular industry, so we had a few more. And a lot of people in the... Um, Early 90s, though, was really popular. I have like 12 stocks, and I didn't like that. I, I like 20 to 22. I get good diversification. I'm in seven or eight countries, and so I can pick out the best businesses in each country. And, and, and you know, if you find four or five new ideas a year, four or five stocks go out of the portfolio, there's enough to make it interesting. And as the years have gone on, like a lot of what you're talking about is – basic metrics, but maybe applied to a part of the world that you don't have the same level of financial analysis sophistication. Is th- that's, I know that's what it was like 25 years ago. What's similar and what's different today in your markets? Well, I, I think China has now really over the last four years really come on for us as a as a business we for many many years we exported out of china we sold to china uh, but we really were very peripherally involved in chinese stocks they had really high valuations it was the flavor of the month for everybody to get into the china boom and i think booming conditions often don't lead to good equity returns and so we were fine outside of china but now, four years ago, we really pivoted and put the, what's today the bulk of our money into China, particularly A-shares. And in many ways, China today is just like Asia 20, 25 years ago. The local investors are largely punters. They're largely short-term. They don't really have the sophistication. But it's not their fault, Ted. It, the fault is, is that when you think about what are Chinese blue chips, well, you could say NetEase, listed in New York, Tencent, listed in Hong Kong. Alibaba, maybe even, listed in New York. And so these local investors haven't really known what a good investment is. And so they go back to technical analysis, uh, short-term momentum trading, and everything else. And, and so over time, that had created enormous inefficiencies that are now being resolved. And now we're, we're in the early stages where we're building blue chips, just like we're building blue chips in China now, the way we built blue chips in Thailand or Indonesia or, or Taiwan years ago. And, and I think now that process has started. You have Shanghai, Hong Kong Connect. You've got Shenzhen, Hong Kong Connect. You've got Bond Connect. You've got now MSCI. And, and, and all of this is helping the local Chinese investor figure out what are we meant to be doing with our money? What, 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 do, what do really intelligent investors really do? And so it's, it's not just pure speculation. They are, and, and with our involvement, we are creating, I think, Chinese blue chips now. So that first stock 
So you had avoided China, selling into China, periphery around China, Southeast Asia. But then there was that moment where you said, okay, now well, we're going to do it. And, you, you know, your clients know you for discipline, not in China. Now we're going to – what. What was that decision process like in that moment? Okay, we're going to make a change on the margin. How are we going to do it? And what are we going to tell our clients? Well, the first thing happened was there was a good problem where we had had a lot of consumer stocks in Southeast Asia, Hong Kong, and whatnot. And they all got up to 30 times earnings, and I kind of don't know how to make money from 30 to 40 PE. So we literally, we sold them all. Literally within six-month time, we built up cash and we were looking around and, and, and my colleagues and I, we didn't have an idea what, we didn't know what we were going to do, you know, it was sort of a scratch your head time. And during that, you know, A shares, as we were screening and looking, A shares were popping up. And one in particular, we came across and began to really think about, which was a company called China Yangtze Power. It owns the Three Gorges Dam. And there's no, as, they, as we say at Overlook, there's no damn, damn analysts on Wall Street that you can call up for advice on what a damn is, you know. And it took me a while to figure it out, but we then figured out that really dams are the best infrastructure asset in the world today. That their reinvestment requirements are almost nothing, and so they're essentially financial assets. And when we figured out what China Yangtze Power was, then we said, well, if this is this good, what else? And then what else? And then we found YU uh, Auto Parts. And then we found Shanghai Airport. And then we found this. And then we found that. And we, and we say, okay, well, that one's not good enough. Let's get rid of that and let's get this one in. And, and it started rolling. And then at times, Chinese companies listed in Hong Kong got cheaper. And so we could pivot into that. And, and it just rolled and rolled and rolled. The, the investors were very disturbed, I, I have to say. If they're honest, they would say that, look, Richard, you've been coming in here for 20 years telling us the Chinese banks are bad. And in fact, I, I don't, I'm not sure that's actually as true as I used to say, really. I just, but I always said, Ted, that I would never buy China because China was China. And by 2013, we were buying China on our terms. These things were mostly single digits, high yields, high cash yields, good growth. And uh, we are buying them on our terms. And we're going into these companies. And literally, we are the first or second foreign investor in these companies. And, uh, and it's not a big population of really good A shares, but there was enough for us. And did you have to worry about governance risks that you may have gotten comfortable with in all the other countries you were investing in? Well, I, I tell you, one of these apocryphal stories, I was in, a, in an office in Shanghai. I'm in a conference room, and there's two financial guys across the table from me, and there's a guy down at the end of the table. He was the Communist Party member taking notes, I found out later, right? So <laughs> that was a little creepy. But, but I, I went to the CFO, and I said, well, who's looking after my interests? I said to him, who's looking? He says, well, the independent directors are. Uh, you know, I, I might have rolled my eyes because, you know, I've never been able to rely on independent directors. But he goes, would you like to meet them? And no one in my entire history in Asia had ever offered to introduce me to an independent director. So, okay, yeah, I'd like to meet the guy. You know, and, and it was really a sign what we found where is, is that not all these companies, but a lot of these companies were really struggling to figure out how to do it correctly. But they didn't know. There was no role model. And they were searching for answers, Ted. And, you know, that was, that was manna for us. Talk a little bit about how you do your homework in Asia. We have a bunch of 
rules, say. You know, I don't, I don't really like rules per se. You know, I was a little rambunctious as a kid, right? But we have disciplines, procedures, processes. You know, one of them is we visit 400 companies a year. We do analysis on 30 to 40, and we end up buying three or four or five. You know, I like the odds. You know, I'm buying one in 100. I, I like the odds. But then people say, well, if you saw 800, you'd have even better odds. Well, if you see 800, you don't know what you're seeing. You know, so this idea of what I call purposeful meetings. So I'm in your office or, or Mr. Wong's office or whoever's office. I am there for a reason. Intentionally there, I'm searching for something. That, that cleans out a lot of the sloppiness. And if you do that 400 times a year, you're going to find your stocks. Of course, if you do it 20 times a year, you're also going to get your three or four stocks, right? So you want to, on the one hand, improve your odds, but don't dilute it so much. Yep. I, and, and then we don't, I, I have a history or I have a policy that I, I don't want to talk about a company until I or one of my colleagues has done full financial forecast on the business. And I think doing income statement, balance sheets, and cash flows customized but standard template you know they're not templates but they're they're customized for the business but i know exactly where all the numbers are that i want to see so they're very we can read them very fluently doing those are a pain in the neck and if i say what does the 2020 balance sheet look like unless you've done a lot of work on the business you don't know what the answer is on that and that'll become obvious in the spreadsheet and so we we have that discipline also which is forcing us to cross t's dot i's and a lot of times you get halfway through a spreadsheet and you just chuck it out, man. I've seen enough, you know. So I, I think all of those disciplines help. And what does it take for one of those four names? So you, you meet the 400, you do the work on 3040, they're four you're going to buy. What, what, are the, what are those special characteristics? Yeah, I think it's the confluence of everything. You know, I, I, I get kind of, in, in one sense, I'm not a greedy individual for money, but I'm greedy for superior businesses, management, valuation, long-term run, you know, long-term runway. I, I, I want all that. So, I, you know, that's the way at the end of the day when we summarize, does it have a superior business? Does it have the management that can get it, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So of the, of the successful investments you've made, what have been the most important characteristics of a superior business? Well, we talk about, you know, it's reflected in high profitability, right? Whether we look at operating return, which is EBIT over operating net assets of the business, to see what is the real driver of that, of that fact, what's the profitability of the factory or the retail or whatever, Right. But the, the key criteria in that whole thing, the way you get high profitability, it was with pricing power. And pricing power is a phrase that's kind of loosely used on Wall Street. And the next time someone says, oh, I invest in companies with pricing power, you can say, how do you value? What's the, how do you value pricing power? How, or no, how do you calculate pricing power, right? And... So I was in 2006, I was increasingly worried about rising inflation globally, particularly in Asia. And I went back to the conditions in the early 80s where it was very inflationary. And, and the great stock in the early 80s was a company called Cap Cities Communication. And there was a sister, kind of a cousin of Cap Cities called Multimedia Inc. that ran TV stations and radio stations down the southeast. And they had pricing power. They were moving up their pricing every year. And so I said, now I'm worried about inflation. 
what was it about multimedia? And so I'm thinking about it, I'm thinking about it, and I realized that, that it was pricing power, and they were passing on the prices, and they were able to do that. And so we did a lot of profound thinking about where's the pricing decision made, where is it reflected on the income statement, how do you standardize pricing across a whole host of companies or industries, and so we began to be able to index pricing power. And I, I don't want to, I'd have to kill you if I gave you the equation, Ted. <laughs> but, but, you know, people can think about it, you know. And, and so we don't say pricing power casually. We know, you know. And, and sure enough, in, in 06, 07, which was a time of turmoil, we looked around Asia and say, who has this pricing power? And we might come up with 50 companies, but out of 50, some of them had fake pricing power. Right. But boy, there were others, you know, and and sure enough, when we knew something like TSMC, TSMC was gold standard for pricing power, you know. And and so we said, well, what else had that financial characteristics, particularly that equation that we're looking at? And and so, you know, the period 08 to 2013, in our view, was just pricing power portfolio period. And uh, pricing power is just crazy. And, and then I got into the inflation, and then 07, 08 happened, and we had deflation. And I realized that pricing power is as good in a deflationary environment as it is in an inflationary environment. So it's like, it's like gold, this stuff. Talk a little bit about how you decide when to sell names in your portfolio. Yeah, so we've kind of solidified it down to about five different ways we sell. And I've had a lot of people you know, around me that have known how to sell. I remember a lot, but the, but the story on selling that I'd like to share is with a, a guy by the name of Leon Levy. Leon was Odyssey, one of the founding yeah. partners of Odyssey Partners. Leon was one of the great minds on Wall Street. He worked at Oppenheimer before. And, and he was one of my early investors. And I'd come see him over on 54th Street or something, and he had this beautiful wood-lined office with Greek statues and stuff I mean it was it was crazy and one day I came in there and Leon looks at me and says Richard you don't know how to sell securities and I kind of fumbled my way through the rest of the hour I was with Leon <laughs> I walked out and I had to lean up against the building I was so shaken because it was a, a marvelous trait of Leon that he knew more about me than I did and no one had ever told that to me directly. And of course, he was right. And so we set about in a very disciplined manner now to read everything. How do we sell? You know? And so you know, a common friend, Charlie Ellis, you know, winning the loser's war, talking about rebalancing. Well, that was an easy one. And then I hark back to a day in 1983. One of our stocks was uh, one of the original hard disk drive manufacturers called Tandon Corp out of California. And one day... John Bush came back from lunch and sold every one of his clients out of the entire stock. And I had been massively bullish on this thing. And, <laughs> and he, I went to, what are you doing, John? He says, well, I just got tomorrow's price today. Uh, and the stock went... Tomorrow's price today. So the stock was at 36. I have written research reports at 19 telling people to buy it, at 16 people t telling people to buy it, and finally at about seven where I really got... I really got dogmatic about it. I said, you've heard me before, but you really, you know, you got to buy this thing. This is good. And it went from seven on its way to zero, of course. You know? <laughs> so sometimes you get tomorrow's price, right? That, 
is just a fabulous feeling. And by the way, let's just uh, we'll come back to the others, but yeah. as an aside, you have people like Tom Russo, who I had on the show, and Warren Buffett, who would tell you, if you have tomorrow's price today, just hold it and wait for the day after tomorrow, because a great company is going to keep growing. So how do you balance the two? You know, through hard lessons, I've learned that that doesn't really suit me all that well. And that's where selling is an intensely emotional time. It's much more controversial than buying. And that's where rebalancing is so perfect because, and I'm so thankful for, to Charlie Ellis for teaching me this, but it's a completely unemotional event. But, you know, as stocks go up and up, they're getting bigger in the portfolio, you just rebalance them down. And then one day when they do go down, now you have the capital to really go back in. And if you didn't, when they come back down, they're still too big, which is a really big failing of people. So we, we rebalance of course, we often sell when we realize we made a mistake. And, you know, it happens. You don't bat a thousand in this business. And when you make them, sell it. Don't argue about it. Don't point fingers at people internally. And don't look back. And do those mistakes tend to be a fundamental misunderstanding? Yeah, I mean, you can always track it back to the guy, right? Or the woman running it, right? That's inevitably who the villain is. But the, the mistake was made in any number of areas. You know, mistakes, mistake. You know, if I blame you for a mistake, then the next mistake's definitely going to be mine, and you're going to point your finger at me and say, hey. Right. You know, or you're going to say, well, bag Richard. I'm not going to take risk. Let him take all the risk. And, and you can't have that in a money management firm. The other reason we sell is when the macroeconomic conditions that I talked about earlier, LD ratios, current accounts, fast loan growth, no forex reserves. When, when those flash red, we get out of Dodge. In that particular country. In that country or that area, you know, and, and you, just, you just have to. And is there a moment in time where they flash red? Because those things all move gradually. Yeah, it's just, it's just you know, you're, you, you get to the point where you really can't take it. Yeah, yeah, okay. So the last way we do it is really, of course, this is the best, is when we have more ideas than we have space in the portfolio. And if you're really limited to 22 names, something's, if something's got to get in the portfolio, you're going to go shoot something. And that's, that's the best. You know, really, as I always say, the lifeblood of a fund management business is new ideas. And so when you can execute on new ideas, you keep all the rot and the complacency out of the portfolio. So I know that alongside of all of this investment philosophy, a lot of disciplines about how you do your research, how you construct your portfolio, there's an entire piece of discipline that you've created of how you run your business. And I know we've talked in the past about capping subscriptions and how powerful that was. Why don't you talk about how you came to that and why it was so powerful and and why you're so proud of what's happened as a result? Well, I had never seen a cap. I'd never thought about a cap. I never knew what a cap would do for me. And I was at the university club here, I think it's on Fifth Avenue, having a lunch with a guy by the name of Crosby Smith. And... I had no investors at the time. And Crosby looked at me over a lunch and says, well, why aren't you going to be like every other fund manager and just raise AUM? And it kind of shocked me, the question, because I really wanted to invest because I like investing. I, I, I wasn't really thinking about the business side. And I said at the time, I said, well, Crosby, I'll cap it. I'll cap it at $30 million. And he says, okay, we're in. And I was like, wow, that's great. And then... Maybe a month or two later, I came back to my dad's office at 610 Fifth Avenue, and his secretary said, I, I got the call from so-and-so in Switzerland. 
And he said he wants you to reserve space in your fund for him. I didn't even know the guy. But he said, he said he's heard there's a cap and he wanted to reserve space before the cap filled up. And that was, that was like, wow. <laughs> but then, then, of course, so it's been good in, in creating a meaningful experience for the investor that they're in there and they've made a big commitment. Most of my investors have had to wait at least a year before they get in. And so they can feel whether it works or not. Is there too much volatility with Richard or not? So that's been great, you know. And so people are making the decisions to invest with Overlook for the right reason. But ultimately, it wasn't just a $30 million cap and that was it. Right? No, so. and, and I evolved the cap. But, but the other thing, as we began to manage the $30 million, I was running into a lot of friends. They said, well, man, I, I just got $3 million on the fax machine. I don't know where to do it, you know, in these bull markets. And I was able to size my positions and hold them. And so there wasn't chaos in my portfolio. And so that was another advantage of the cap. So we, we have operated with a cap for 25 years. And how, how does that cap work today? Well, we had a hard cap at the beginning. And then I, you know, someone would want to come in and, and I'd raise the cap you know, and offer it up to other people so that everyone could protect themselves, kind of like a rights issue. And then about 20 years ago, I came up with this idea, let's limit the amount to, I think it was 12% of the last four years average NAV. So in big years, I bring in percentage-wise less, and in bad years, I can bring in percentage-wise more, and so you're kind of adding a counter-cyclicality to the business, and what that 12% meant that we could raise about 7 or 8% new money a year. And with that, the capital weighted returns, which is how the investors have done, not how the fund's NAV has done, how the investors individually and, and in totality have done, the time and capital weighted returns now were the same over 1, 3, 5, 10, and so forth. Is that because you always had excess demand to get in the fund? Yeah, I don't like creating excess demand. But I understand the value of having relationships with people who might come in at some point in the future. You know, and realistically, if they're in a wait list, you know, for a year, they can usually get in in some way. People do retire or get sick of me, tired of me, angry at me or whatever. So, <laughs> but, but the whole, the, 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 the power of it is, is really this capital weighted return. So if you look at funds, don't look at the time-weighted return, which is the NAV, the per-share NAV over time. Look at the capital-weighted returns because so many of the, the big funds, the brand-name funds, they did really well with small amounts of money, and then they raise huge amounts of money, do very poorly, and destroy the capital-weighted returns. And so it's been documented that if a fund has, a, say, for example, a 10% time-weighted return, the studies have shown that the capital weighted return is about two and a half. So it's a really meaningful discount or discount. So there has to be something more to it because, as you mentioned earlier, in the Asian financial crisis, you lost your largest investor. In 2008, you lost a different largest Market. investor. But those are the moments that usually dominate the difference between the capital dollar weighted return and the time weighted return. So it it's not just the cap because there was there had to be something about this notion of excess demand. Otherwise, you wouldn't have been able to fill those big holes. Right. And that would have really hurt the cap weighted return. Right. And that is having relationships that you can replace your biggest investor, you know, and, and having that in reserve. Now, thankfully, 
you know, I've lost my biggest investor twice, but I, I don't lose many investors along the way either because, you know, I'm here in New York and in Boston, et cetera, et cetera, twice a year. We, we really work hard at transparency and what we're doing, which I think reinforcing the model of what we're doing. So my investors have very good understanding that in good times or bad, Richard's pretty much the same. The other thing you've done, which it shocked me when I looked back and saw when, you've consistently cut your management fee. And not only that, but you cut it for the first time when you grew the fund to the whopping size of $78 million in 1994. And over that period of time, I think it started, I think, as a 1.5% management fee with an incentive, and now it's below 1% for all your investors. Right. And well, everyone, everyone pays the same. And so what was the original thought of cutting a management fee? And how do you decide, oh, I'm going to cut it now. I'm not going to cut it this time. Do you ever think, well, my assets are lower. Maybe I should raise it a little bit so I can fund my team. Well, I had, a, I had an early perspective into the 2 and 20 hedge fund. I mean, in, in 91, 92, that was all just emerging. And I looked at that. I said, man, that's not going to last. And so even with me at one and a half, I thought, wow, that's not going to last. So I want to get ahead. I, I, I always felt that I'd rather cut fees than have fees cut on me or lose investors because I haven't cut fees. And I really didn't think these high fees would last. And so I just started cutting. And what I do is I cut after good years. After bad years, I don't cut. I don't want to show a sign of weakness. And as I tell my investors, I'm too pissed off to cut the fee. <laughs> you know? But after good years, why not? Yeah, yeah. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the notion of continuous improvement in your process, because a lot of the things you're talking about, I know you've evolved into. Where does that come from, that need, that new idea to enhance a research process that is an otherwise simple portfolio? You know, 20 names, a couple new names a year, go visit a bunch of companies. Well, I think there's this idea of innovations, right? We've, brought a, we've incorporated a lot of innovations that are designed to give insight into stocks. Pricing power is a classic example of that, right? So you have to have a group of people around you that are intellectually hungry, intellectually interested in their challenge, competitive, and are searching for ways to get insights, you know? And it's strictly just intellectual drive, that, that brings these things, and they can come along. We've had a lot of innovations that we've incorporated but then discarded. But I, I want to be really clear. We haven't invented any of this, okay? We picked it up from all the great investors, people I knew, people I didn't know who had just written. We picked it up, and we cherry-picked this to put it together so it felt right to me. So it's, it's not fair that any of my colleagues or me get credit for inventions, but we've We've embraced these innovations to improve the process. What are the most recent ones you've worked on? Here in the United States, I think portfolios got very complicated about 20 years ago. You know, they just, people ran different balance sheets on businesses where it was up until recently, Asia, everybody had, you know, good guys had good balance sheets, bad guys had balance sheets and bad balance sheets and whatnot. But in the last four years, uh, particularly as we began to get into infrastructure typified by China Yangtze Power, we realized that whereas we had been collecting dollar-weighted valuation characteristics on the portfolio for all these years, that became distorted. CYPC or China Yangtze Power had debt. Well, it should have debt. If there ever was a business on earth that should have debt, that's it. 
but and but likewise, it depreciates its dams over 26 and a half years, but they're going to last over 150 years. So that's wrong too. So PEs didn't work, and so we went to valuing it like a like an office building, and then we took it out and we've segmented. Okay, if you look at internet stocks, they're different businesses in my view. They're extremely profitable. They can scale their growth, and they bring a lot of growth into our portfolio, right? But it's not realistic to think they're going to sell at 14 times earnings like the rest of the other parts of our portfolio, right? So we separate that out. We're trying to get apples to apples now within it, and I think this will be good. You know, it's not an enormous innovation, but it's something that's giving us helpful insights into, which is where the value is. Can you talk a little bit about your team? I mean, I know it's always been small and low turnover. How do you work together? And you were in Asia for a long time, and you moved back to the States, and now you're back and forth. How does that all work? I have been blessed. I've had very little turnover of senior people around me. I always say if we can just execute the model, everything's good. If individuals try to change the model, they're better off working somewhere else. So we have other people that are working elsewhere. But I've been very blessed by having really a loyal group of people around me. So that's that. Also been blessed that I'm surrounded by adults. You know, I, I remember one time going to John Bush and saying, hey, you know, John, I'm going to be out of the office. I got to go to a dentist appointment or something like that. And John said, look, Richard, if you're not in the office, I'm going to understand that's for a good reason. So you don't need to ask permission. You know, and I was a 25-year-old. Yeah. <laughs> and, but, but that's the way I believe, you know. And, and, and we've been lucky in, in Hong Kong. And it, it, what a great place. The culture is hardworking, entrepreneurial. You know, there's a real self-policing aspect to people's work at Overlook that's been just brilliant. And so today we have, there are 11 of us that, that run Overlook, four in the back office and seven on the investment team. And we do... We do basically everything, so we're very efficient. Let's dive in a little bit on China Yangtze Power and the whole notion of infrastructure assets. And this was the first name you ever did something more than just have one single portfolio for all your clients. You have an SPV on this name. So what was it that was so special about this company and asset? And where does it stand today? So we we found CYPC in 2013. They couldn't explain the business to us. But the numbers came off the paper like crazy. 98% of their net free cash flow was free because they had so little maintenance requirements on maintaining the dams. So we, we understood it financially. It was selling really cheaply, right? But they had at the time, Ted, a legal commitment on the part of the parent to sell in two huge dams that they were building further up on a tributary of the Yangtze River. And I said at the time the risk to the stock was that they – they mismanaged that. And so we started a process, which we often do, of talking to management and explaining to them really how they should be thinking about doing this acquisition. And to their credit, as we got deeper into the corporation, they were really interested listeners. They were, you've got to give these guys credit. They, they were taking it in. They, they had kind of their poker face they'd give with me. And it was very clear that, you know, I was a foreigner and not a member of the Communist Party, but they were, they were listening. And so we, we talked to them about three things, how to make this acquisition fair for everybody. 
I wasn't looking for some special deal. I wasn't looking for a short-term hit. I said, you know, just do it fair, fair for the parent, fair for shareholders, fair for bankers, fair for employees. Then we said, look, if you can do that, then the next thing you really need to think profoundly about is how are you going to allocate this free cash flow? Because now post-acquisitions, about $6 billion of gross free cash flow, 5.6 of net free cash flow after maintenance capex. So, I mean, it's just a huge amount of free cash flow that they generate. And how do you allocate that between retaining it, paying off the acquisition debt, and paying it out to shareholders? And we said, you know, up until now, you don't have that right. And you need to think about that. And so when they announced the acquisition, where it was very clear it was fair to everybody. It was clearly accretive to per share values. They also announced an 85% increase in the dividend and guaranteed it for five years. And no one in my time in Asia had ever guaranteed me dividends except for one Filipino guy, Fred Yutang-Su, years ago. And so, you know, it was clear to me that they were listening. And, and the third thing we talked about then was the importance of them becoming a blue chip. Because China needs China Yangtze power. They need blue chips domestically. It's not enough to have NetEase listed in New York to be a really great company. You got to, and, and, and so I think they've embraced that as well. And I, and I think that when you look at the business, if you combine that buy-in, which is unusual for a state-owned enterprise, but when you look at that buy-in and you combine it with the fact that it's the finest energy asset in China, it's the finest infrastructure asset in Asia. It's the lowest cost producer of clean energy in a country that's choking on coal. This is really an important asset, period, in China. And so did you enter and buy the stock en masse before having the sense that you would have that buy-in on capital structure and yeah, how the acquisition? Yeah. So how did you get comfortable taking that risk? Was it price? Well, I think it's, it's always then what do you pay and what do you get? When we were buying this thing at seven dollars, seven renminbi, it was like, okay, we can take that risk. What type right? of valuation was that at the time? Oh, we were probably at a unlevered free cash flow rate of about eleven, twelve percent, levered higher, you know, with the best energy assets in the country, best utility assets in the country, sells their utility, sells their electricity way below coal, nuclear, gas, wind, solar. I mean, so it was cheap, right? So we didn't say anything for a year. And that's generally kind of our modus operandi. We do not go look for trouble, and we, but we do try to pay a positive role for businesses just to help people understand how we think. Yeah. You know, these guys had no experience. I was the first foreign investor in the company. You know, even back then, it was still a $20 billion company. Yeah, wow. What's the biggest mistake you've made, and how, what did you learn from it? Oh, well, you know, I've made them all. At one time or another, you know, thank you very much for the question, Ted. You know, if I could have one thing to do over, I would have realized that I should have hedged the currencies in Asia when current accounts went above 5%. But, you know, Buffett was saying, oh, just buy, don't look at the economy, just buy stocks. And I said, well, that's good, but that wasn't all that helpful, you know. But <laughs> it's a cumulative ball game here. Yeah. What risk do you think is most underappreciated in your markets? Today, you know, it's, there's lots of different risks that are evolving, right? Geopolitical risk, 
I'm really, you know, it's, it's so funny for me to sit here as an American and say that I think today, as we sit here in July 2017, President Trump's the biggest risk to Asia. I mean, that's just wild, right? But, but it really is. I mean, he doesn't understand North Korea, in my view. He doesn't understand the importance of China and how China should be a natural strategic ally of the United States the way Europe is. They have, share a lot of the same beliefs, and they're a natural ally in a, in a bigger, more dangerous world. And, and the U.S. government is just hell-bent on making them our enemy. And so I, I'm, I, those are you know, big, big risks. What is your favorite thing to do that is a complete waste of time? Uh, probably mountain biking. <laughs> Some would call that exercise, though. Yeah, it's exercise. <laughs> what was your favorite sports moment as a participant or a fan? Well, probably when the Mets win the World Series. So we don't have many of those. That's true. <laughs> now, which one are we talking about? Sixty-nine or? Well, sixty-nine was you know I was a young, impressionable young boy. That's right. And that's where you know puppy love be really happened. What phrase did your mother or father repeat to you over and over that most stuck with you? Fools' names and fools' faces always appear in public places. Fools' names and fools' faces faces. always appear in public places. That's a good one. (laughs) What's your favorite book? Uh, I guess the most profound book I've read, particularly in recent years, is probably The Economics of Climate Change by Lord Stern that showed that this thing is really real and it's motivated me and will continue to motivate me for the rest of my life. What profession other than investing would you like to attempt? Be a big league pitcher or shortstop. Yeah. There's still time, right? <laughs> there's, there's time, but there's no shoulder. <laughs> what do you know now that you wish you knew 10 years ago? Well, I guess I'm more philosophical about it. You know, we're going to have our successes. We'll have our failures. We just, I really think that I, I don't take it as personally successes or failures uh, that I used to. And I think that's a good thing because a lot of this is, there are certain things that are out of our control. Bear market starts tomorrow. It's not my fault. You know, and I, I think I'm more philosophical about that, which is probably a good thing. All right, last one. It is your waning days. You're in your late 90s, sitting in a rocking chair. What advice would you give yourself today? Do more, do it faster have a bigger as big an impact on the world as you can outside of work and pick your cause and really go for it and you can't take that money with you richard thank you so much for the time thank you ted thanks for listening to this episode if you know a manager you'd like to hear on the show please reach out or ask the manager to reach out to ted at capitalallocators.com. We greatly appreciate your ideas and we'll do our best to help foster transparency and communication across the industry.